Well, friends, let me invite you to open up your Bibles right now uh, or open up your worship guide. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. But as you're uh, turning there, what we are doing this Advent series is we are asking the question, this Advent season, we're asking the question, why did Jesus come? There are many different reasons, how, many different ways that you can answer that question. But that question, why did Jesus come, when we are asking that question from the book of 1 John, and that's what we're doing, we find there are incredible and very encouraging um, answers. But the 1 John lifts our eyes and helps us remember why Jesus came, but also helps us look forward to when he will uh, return. And so today we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 uh, through 6. If you are with us last week, we looked at 1 John uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 28. And there's a lot of overlap. But today we're going to be highlighting and specifically focusing on verses 4, 5, and 6. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word now as we consider what God is saying to us about why His Son came. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And we pray for your spirit to plant your word deep in our hearts right now. That your word would teach us and correct us and rebuke us and train us in righteousness. That your word would show us your incredible love for us this morning. And bear much fruit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. What is your favorite thing about Christmas? If I would ask my children, my children would say, it's getting gifts. If I'm being honest, it's also getting gifts. But so as you think about this, one of the great joys of Christmas is the receiving of gifts. But when we receive gifts we are from others, from people who love us, or your friends or coworkers, we are receiving a gift that often shows how they think of us. They, we are receiving a gift that shows us something that they understand about us. So think about this. If you receive some gift, a gift of socks on Christmas Day, perhaps you're getting a gift because this person knows you get cold feet. Perhaps they saw you um, have holes in your socks. If you receive a gift of clothes, and pretending, depending on what the clothes are, perhaps they are thinking that you need to update your fashion sense. Perhaps they know you like cardigans with big pockets in them. Or you like cashmere. If someone gives you a, a particular movie or an album, perhaps they know you like the, that artist, that director, that actor. When we think, understand this about gifts, 
in light of Christmas. When we understand this about gifts in light of Jesus, this, is, this helps us understand something about why Jesus came. Because Scripture talks about Jesus and his entire life and the work of Jesus in our lives as the free gift of God. So just combine that idea that Jesus is the free gift of God with that entire point of gift giving. When we receive a gift, that is revealing something that God understands about us. And what is that? When we have the free gift of Jesus Christ, what is being revealed to us about ourselves? That simple question, that simple insight is found here for us in 1 John chapter 3. Now, 1 John 3 has a lot to say to answer that question and to give us a keener insight about our life. And so as I said, as this Advent season, we're asking the question, why did Jesus come? And when we think about 1 John, 1 John answers this question not by using the language of Jesus came or but using the language of Jesus appears. That entire, that word appear, it means also reveal, manifested, also coming. And so here in, in our text, we saw this a few places. Last week we saw this, that, we, that when he appears, he has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That was last week, 1 John 3, 2. Today, we're going to be looking at 1 John 3, 5. And this is what we read in 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, in him, there is no sin. So let's simply walk through this verse this morning. And John starts out by saying, you know. How is John able to say this? Because John is writing to these Christians, and he is assuming that they already know this. How is John able to say this? And well, there are a few reasons to this. That John is writing to Christians in the first century. And one of the reasons why he is able to say that you know this is that they have the Old Testament that is readily available uh, to them. That in Luke 24, 27, Jesus speaks to his two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says that, he starts walking through all the prophets and all the writings about the verses that were concerning him. That the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. That Jesus is the long-awaited, promised, and prophesied Messiah. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, you read this one line that every story in the Old Testament whispers his name. And right now I know the Downingtown community group is like think, looking at the Old Testament and, and looking at the various verses that are pointing to Jesus and that, are, pro, that are, prophe, are prophecies about Jesus. And there, scholars conservatively estimate that there are over 300 verses that Jesus fulfilled. And so just a few of those verses could be the virgin birth. And this is Isaiah 7. And he will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and, and have a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Another prophecy would be that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from the ancient of days. He's a descendant of David, 2 Samuel 7. He fled into donkey. He, 
He fled into Egypt. He rode on a donkey. He died upon the cross and so much more. See, Jesus is a long-awaited promised Messiah. He's, he's prophesied. Every story is whispering his name. So John is writing to these Christians, and they will say, you know this because here is the testimony of the Old Testament. But that's not the only reason why John is able to say, you know this. He's able to say, you know this because they are Christians, that they have heard this good news about Jesus, why he came. They heard this good news from the apostles themselves or other Christians who were sharing their faith. So they heard this news from the apostles themselves, that the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. So, and so one way that you should think about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you should think about those Gospels as biographies of Jesus Christ, that they are full of details and eyewitness accounts. And so, in fact, Luke, he writes this in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, that he begins his Gospel, his biographical account of Jesus, as an investigative reporter, He is able to go to people and ask them and to say what has happened. He's able to go to them and ask them to confirm what he is hearing. But it's not just the Christians or the apostles who knew and heard of what Jesus was doing. The apostle Paul, when he was put on trial, he goes to King Agrippa, who's a non-Christian, and he says this, the king knows about these things, And to him I speak, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The point being is that the story of what, of Jesus' life, the story of what Jesus did is actually so well known, it's documented by non-Christians. It was seen by non-Christians and known to them. And so some dismiss the story of Jesus as a myth, as an exaggerated story. But I want to highlight something that C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis, a writer, very popular writer of mere Christianity and other books, but he was a true scholar in literature. And he, wrote, he said this, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all of my life. I know what they are like. I know, of, I know that none of them are like the Gospels. Of the Gospel texts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only two views. They are either reportage, like journalism, or some unknown ancient writer without influence, predecessor, successor, suddenly anticipated the entire genre of modern, novelistic, realistic storytelling. His point is that either here are the, here are the Gospels, it's either like a modern-day novel or it's journalism. See, here's the Apostle John. He is one of the eyewitnesses and writers of the Gospels. In fact, he was one of the original disciples. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. In the Gospel of John, you don't see him mentioned by name, but you see him referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the three who were in Jesus' most inner circle. There's Peter, there's James, and there's John. And John goes on to describe Jesus in a very remarkable way. Look at verse 5 again. You know that he appeared in order to take away 
sins. And in him, there is no sin. In him, there is no sin. Simple question for you. How long would someone need to know you in order to find out that you are a sinner? How long would someone need to know you in order to find out that you are a sinner? It could be a family member, someone who would live with you, co-worker, a friend, a stranger. You can ask my sons, and they would be able to tell you that I'm a sinner. You'd be able to ask Jennifer, and she would be like, yeah, Robbie's a sinner. Uh, you probably don't need to ask them. You know yourself I'm a sinner. <laughs> well, so let's just think about our lives here for a moment. Because John is actually talking about us here, too. Look at 1 John verse 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Anyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. See, there are many good definitions of sin. Now, one definition of sin is that sin is a lack of conformity to God's word, to God's will. St. Augustine said that sin is our disordered heart and our disordered desires. G.K. Chesterton said that our sin is an inward curve. It's self-centeredness. Francis Bufford, a writer today, he said that sin is the human propensity to mess things up. But to our text, John says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And this is the idea that we are living our life contrary to God's law, that we are living our life without regard to what God says that we don't care what God says about our life. That's sin. Sin is this rebellion. And so sinfully, to rephrase a, a lyric from The Clash, we want to sing that I fought the law and I won. That's what we want to say. So how do you see this lawlessness in your life? How do you see this sinfulness in your life when you do things without regard for God? For God? Think about the entirety of your life. When do you do that? It could be in the past, as a child, when you go to the grocery store, you steal a Snickers bar. It's a specific sin there. It could be cheating on a quiz. It could be telling a lie. It could be lust. It could be harboring anger in your heart. It could be an unkind word spoken to your wife, to your child, a coworker. See, every single one of us is a sinner And there is an inherent problem that John is highlighting, that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We are lawless. We are sinners. And so even in the Old Testament, when when God designed the sacrificial system for people to atone for their sins and be reconciled to God, there's an inherent problem even in that design. Hebrews 7.27 says this about the priests who would offer sacrifices for the people of God. That they needed to offer a sacrifice for their own sin first. And then they would have to make a sacrifice to atone for the sin of the people. The problem before us is that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot atone for our sins. We are lawless. We cannot save ourselves. And so... What is our hope? John highlights our hope for us about Jesus, that Jesus, you know that Jesus appeared to take away our sins, but how does Jesus do that? Go back to that amazing insight that John gives us about Jesus. 
In him there is no sin. This is amazing because here's John who knew Jesus. He followed him for three years. And he knew Jesus as like one of his best friends. And he would say this about Jesus, that he was without sin. And this notion of Jesus' perfection is all throughout Scripture. This notion of sinlessness is actually mentioned like an afterthought throughout the New Testament, but it is essential to our salvation. And in fact, this is how Jesus saves us from our sin. We sang a song earlier that mentioned that the Lamb was given for us. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, John 1.29. But that name, the Lamb of God, is an important name. If you look in the Old Testament, that sacrificial system God put together, the lambs were being sacrificed to God and they were without spot, without blemish. In, that, in other words, that they are perfect. In fact, 1 Peter 1.19 says this, that you are ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, Jesus is the one. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep. He's a friend who dies for his friends. Jesus is the one who lays down his life and rescues us from our sins. But for our sins to be taken away, for our sins to be dealt with, We needed to have a perfect, perfect sacrifice. And that is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, he came and he lived the life that we should have lived. That statement right there is meant to say that Jesus was perfect and he lived a life that we could not live because of our sinfulness. But Hebrews 7, I mentioned it earlier, but Hebrews 7 is beautiful Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. For it is fitting that we should have such a high priest that is holy, innocent, untainted, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like the high priest of old to offer sacrifices daily, first for themselves and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That here's Jesus and he committed no sin. And in his mouth, there's, in his heart, there's no deceit. And so what Jesus' sinlessness and his perfection means is that his death on the cross is the final word on your sin. Jesus' perfection means that your sins have been thoroughly and finally and ultimately dealt with. So when Jesus says upon the cross, it is finished, that is the final word on the matter. See, here's Jesus. He's our great high priest, one who is able to sympathize with us in every way, yet without sin. And this is the wonderful, wonderful reality of the incarnation. That Jesus, his name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That God has come and he is with us. So last week, think about St. Athanasius from last week, that he became what we are so that we would become like him. That's rooted in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when Paul says this, that we became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus takes away our sin because he is without sin. And there's this wonderful, great exchange that occurs upon the cross, that Jesus takes our sinfulness and he gives us his perfection. so, So God longs to bring you into his family, but sin prevents that. Sin is what 
prevents that. It is inconsistent with how God, with who God is and how God calls his family to act. And so here's Jesus, that he lived this wonderful life and he obeys God's law, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And he lived a life that we are called to live. And so he goes to the cross and he dies upon the cross. He's the innocent lamb of God. He's perfect. That right there is a great, great tragedy. But he died upon the cross, the death that we deserved. There's this incredible sacrifice that Jesus offers us. As our sins are placed upon him and our, his righteousness, his perfection is given to us. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become righteousness of God. So why did Jesus come? You know why Jesus came. That he appeared to take away your sins. And so friends, I want to highlight something for you today. This is wonderful news, but the devil wants to discourage you. The devil wants to discourage you because he and he will use this wonderful reality to discourage you and he'll use this these wonderful words of scripture to discourage you. Let's say you're here today and you are. But you're here today and and you're a sinner. And you are aware of your sin. The devil wants you to think that you are the one that has to be perfect. That the devil is going to use this verse, verse 6, that anyone who keeps on sinning, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. The devil wants to use these words to discourage you and make you think that you are the one that has to be perfect. And that is actually so far from the truth. John doesn't even think that. 1 John 1.8, we often use this for our call to confession, says this, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself, and the truth is not in us. See, we will sin every, mo- every day of our life until we die or until Jesus com- returns. So this devil wants to discourage you with that. So what is John saying? Because the reality is that although we sin... Although we sin, we are forgiven. And there is, and God's forgiveness is given by grace. There's nothing that we do to deserve that. But there is a cost to forgiveness. That cost to forgiveness is actually the cross. And it's, so God's grace and forgiveness is free to us, but there's a cost to him that Jesus died for us. And so the mark of faith is actually gratitude. When we actually look to the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. See, we cannot be confident on the day that Jesus returns if we are complacent. If we are complacent about sin today. And that is actually the point that John is making. That are you complacent with your sin? Are you ambivalent? Are you actually content with your sin? That you sin and you're, you're aware, like, hey, I just broke God's law. Is that actually your thought? Like, eh, shrug. That's the attitude that John is actually rebuking. That no one can be complacent in their sin. No one can be complacent in their sin and yet confident before Jesus when he returns. No one can be complacent and actually abide in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came to deal with your sin. His sinlessness, his perfection, and his righteousness is given to you. Not because of anything you have done, but because of his love and his favor. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He sees your sinlessness. He sees who you are in Christ Jesus. 
And isn't that beautiful? That means we're able to live differently. We're able to live differently, not by trusting in our works or our perfection, but we're able to live differently because we're able to look to the sinless Lamb of God who came to deal with our sins so that we ourselves would be new and different people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for the incredible confidence that we have where we, we are able to say that we know, that I know, that you have appeared in order to take away our sin. We thank you for your word that you have given to us, that your spirit is working in our hearts. And Father, we pray that your spirit would bring about great fruit and change in our life, that we would not be content or happy or complacent in, with our sin, but we would actually seek to change, to grow in grace, that our lives would be marked by repentance and hope and faith, that we would see your fruit in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to do this, because we cannot do this in our own strength, in our own power, but we fully depend upon you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.